2: First scripture this morning is from Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, sorry, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, Fourteen Generations.
0: Good morning. Our second scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning again, everybody. I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving, and I mean that in a couple of different senses. For those of you uh, who were able to celebrate with family, I hope that was peaceful. (laughs) Uh, And for those of you who weren't able to to celebrate with family, I hope you found it a time of rest uh, and a time to relax and find some peace in life. Uh, Holly, I'm going to try really hard not to take it personally with you bragging up Sylvan's full head of hair. Uh, I know that's not about me, but uh, yeah, not a judgment, not a judgment at all. Uh, we're beginning, again, uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, thank, for you, thank you to those of you who are with us online. It's wonderful to have you as part of this community and uh, able to join us uh, for today's service. My name is Dan Cook. I'm the teaching pastor here at Genesis, and I'm really excited every time I get to be able to be up here and share God's word with you. Uh, and I'm extra honored to be able to be here with you today as we start the season of Advent. Uh, for those of you who are relatively new, uh, we follow the Revised Common Lectionary here at Genesis, which is a three-year cycle of passages that follow what we, the rhythms of the church calendar. And if you're unfamiliar with the church calendar, there's a great representation of it out at the welcome table. A little Coloring sheet, small one, big one, take whatever you like. They're out there for your use. But the church calendar starts every year with Advent. And so this week we start a new year. We finished year C of the, of the lectionary last year. We're starting year A, and I think it's about the third time here at Genesis we've hit year A over the course of our time together. So uh, it, it's, it's fun to start a new series of passages. It's fun to start a new year together and to start it with Advent, to start it with the season of waiting can seem kind of counterintuitive, but hopefully by the end of the day you sort of have an idea of why that's actually a really important way to start things. As it says in your liturgy, uh, the word Advent means arrival. The Latin word adventus actually means literally coming. So during this season of Advent, we are waiting for the coming or the arrival of Christ. And that doesn't just mean this corridor between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Because the Advent tradition stretches all the way back to the early church when they thought the the second coming of Christ was imminent. And so their notion of Advent wasn't about waiting for the birth story. Their notion of Advent was literally waiting for that second coming of Christ. So as we participate in the retelling of the story of waiting for Christ's birth, we're actually modeling the story that we live out as we wait for Christ's return. There's a uh, pastor down in Texas that I follow on TikTok. Yeah, I'm on the talk. I'm hip. I'm with it. <laughs> Reverend, Reverend Ashley Dargay is her name. She pastors a church, as I said, down in Texas. And she was talking about Advent this week, and I wanted to pull a quote from it because I thought it hit on exactly what we, we were going to be talking about over the course of this season. She says, one of the things I love about Christianity, and it's not unique to Christianity, is that we tell ourselves the same stories over and over again, to remind each other, to remember together the promises we've made and the promises that have been made to us and the ways God has moved among God's people before. And that leads us kind of into the theme that Will was talking about earlier and that Pastor Kara mentioned as well, this notion of generation to generation. Because the stories that she's talking about in that quote don't just magically appear every year. They're received, they're considered, they're curated, and then they're passed on to the next generation over and over again, year after year. If you saw in the email today or the email this week, there was a long passage from the sanctified art people. These two uh, art pieces that we have up front here correspond to the two different passages, and I'll reference those as we as we come up to the Matthew genealogy and then to the uh, Isaiah piece. But one of the paragraphs that was in that email that I think is particularly instructive says The stories, scriptures, and traditions of the Christmas season have been passed down to us throughout the generations. Many of us enter this season with a swell of memories and emotions as vast as the cultural and religious rituals this holiday holds. Like a tapestry woven throughout time, the Christmas story weaves us in to remember how God has shown up in the past, to continue the work of collective liberation and to behold the presence of God in flesh and bone. So each year we receive these stories, we receive these texts, we receive these scriptures, and it's important for us to consider their meaning in past contexts, to reconsider their meaning in our current context, and then to share them with the next generation. That's this concept of generation to generation. And some of that contextual shift can happen pretty darn quickly if you think about it. It was just three years ago. 2019 pastor ali preached on this exact passage from isaiah isaiah 2 1 through 5 but think about it. it was december of 2019 in december 2019 nobody had ever heard the word covid nobody had ever heard the word coronavirus a pandemic was something that was in medical journals and in action movies it wasn't anything we had to deal with realistically So when she gets to the end of that sermon and she's asking us questions about what earthly kings we might be clinging to or what swords might God be inviting us to turn into plowshares, the answers that we had in 2019, which were perfectly valid in that space and in that time, just three months later, the entire world got turned upside down. And so the answers we might give to those questions today are completely different than the answers, which doesn't invalidate either set. It just shows how that context shifts and can shift very quickly. Throughout time, and that's why it's important that we repeat these stories, that we take that collective wisdom, that we add whatever piece God calls us to add to it, and that we share that wisdom and knowledge with future generations. And we see that connectivity reflected in the first passage. That, and God bless John Powell for reading that Matthew genealogy. By the way, we uh, <laughs> we uh, we actually discussed. Karen and I discussed. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the First Nation version of the New Testament that Steve introduced us to, the indigenous translation. We actually discussed using that version because what they do in there is in, alongside of the actual names, they give indigenous meanings for each of the names. And it's a really cool way to work your way through that. But we decided it was enough heavy lifting for John already to just do the names, to have to do all the rest of that work probably wasn't great. Uh, and I'd point out too that the artwork specifically for uh, that Matthew passage over here highlights the women in that genealogy which was a very uncommon thing in that place in time to trace a genealogy through a female line. But there's five different women that it mentions, and those five are depicted in this artwork, and I really encourage people to check that out. But there's genealogies in both Matthew and Luke, right? Matthew has it in chapter 1, Luke has it in chapter 3, and they're different. The two genealogies of Jesus are different. Uh, Matthew traces his back to Abraham, Luke traces his all the way back to Adam. And skeptics love to point at that and say, look, contradiction, that's a problem, can't trust the Bible. What they don't stop to consider is that the genealogies aren't there to be Jesus's Ancestry.com page. We don't go to the genealogies to figure out who Jesus's fourth cousin twice removed is. That's That's not what they're there for. The point is to remind two very different audiences. Luke and Matthew are writing to very different groups of people. And it's to remind those people of the connections of Jesus and therefore those same audiences with the stories and the lives of their ancestral past. All the stories that these folks had grown up with about Abraham, about Moses, about David, all of those stories connected to Jesus and therefore connected to them in a very real way. And it's the promises that God had made to those ancestors also flow through those generations to generations and connect together and connect to us as followers of Christ. Remember, Paul says that we are grafted in to the vine that is God, it is Jesus. Because we follow the fulfillment of those promises in Christ, we're connected to those same stories that have been passed down from generation to generation. And that's not just a good thing. That's a very necessary thing for some folks. Pastor Kara said it actually in staff meeting this week, and I'm not sure. I think it was kind of an offhand comment for her, but my antenna went up and I wrote it down right away. She says that there are plenty of people that don't have awesome families of origin, and that can be highlighted, especially at this time of year. So to know that you are connected to this larger spiritual family can be very necessary and comforting to people, especially, again, at this time of year. Thank you. And so we see these stories, and we see these traditions, and we see these promises passed down from generation to generation, and one of those we find in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. So I just want to go through the passage verse by verse and talk a little bit about it and talk about how this connectivity works. So we start with verse one, which says the word that Isaiah, son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem." Now that's an odd thing to start chapter two with. That seems like something you'd start chapter one with, right? That starts, sounds like the start of the story. Well, if you flip back to Isaiah 1, verse one, it says, "The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah." It's the same verbiage, exactly the same verbiage, along with some king's names to give it a certain timestamp. So why? Is this bad editing? Why are we repeating things here? What's going on? Well, if you recall, two weeks ago when I talked about biblical prophetic writing, I mentioned the fact that when we talk about biblical prophecy, we're not talking about Nostradamus-like predictions of the future. Walter Brueggemann says about uh, about biblical prophets that they're not fortune tellers, They're truth-tellers. Prophets in the Bible are speaking with the authority of God, and they usually speak in two different veins, and they're usually connected together. The first is a warning. Hey, if you keep going, how the way you're going, these are the bad things that are going to happen to you. And then there's a promise that comes right after that. And that's why you see the repeat verse here. Because chapter 1 is a warning. It's a very dark, very desolate chapter. I don't recommend reading it if you're in a bad mood. Chapter 2 is the promise. That's why you see those two verses repeating, because they're connected together, and the author wants you to know that they're connected together. So let's go through this passage of chapter 2 then. We'll go to verse 2. Verse 2 says, In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. That's really the part I want to focus on. All the nations shall stream to it. Lord's house just means the temple, of course. So chapter 1 gives the warning of the exile. You heard that in the Matthew passage that talked about the deportation to Babylon. So chapter 1 is Isaiah saying, if you guys keep doing what you're doing, bad things are going to happen. The protection that keeps you safe from people like the Assyrians, safe from people like the Babylonians, that protection goes away, and you're all going to be exiled. And it turns out that's exactly what came to pass. But Even if that happens, the prophet is saying here in chapter 2, even if that happens, God promises a time where the people are no longer scattered out to the nations, but rather the nations come to Israel. That's that last line, all the nations shall stream to it. God's promise is, even though you're taken away from your home, even though you're subject to violence, even though you're subject to oppression, even though you're subject to suffering, there will be a time where God dwells at God's house and all people are drawn to him. Drawn to him as though there's some sort of magnet. Why would that magnet be there? Because God ultimately dwells with God's people. That's the promise. In a new heaven and a new earth, God will not only be present in the temple spiritually, but will be present physically in the temple, in this, new, in this new heaven, in this new earth, in Jerusalem. And everybody, even the people who are the oppressors, even the people who cause the violence, who cause the suffering, will be drawn to the house of God. That's the promise in verse 2. Verse 3, there's so much stuff, and I could do 20 minutes on verse 3 alone. I'm telling you, there's so much stuff in here, but I'm going to concentrate on just a couple of things. Verse 3 says, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's that third line there, the, to the house of the God of Jacob, that I want to focus on first. You hear all the time in the, in the phrasing in the Old Testament, God of Abraham, God of Moses, God of Jacob, God of David. You'll hear various versions of that. Whatever the author selects, God of whatever the name is, is not done arbitrarily. There is a purpose in naming that person. And that purpose is this notion of the stories being handed down generation to generation. When you hear Abraham, when you hear Moses, when you hear Jacob, when you hear David, there are stories that come to mind instantly. And whoever's writing wants you to remember those stories and insert them into the context of their writing. For instance, when we see God of Jacob, I immediately flash back to Genesis 32. If you remember the story of Jacob, when he's young, he steals his older brother Esau's birthright, steals it right out from under him. And then he goes off and makes his own fortune and marries wives and has this big retinue. And now, in Genesis 32, you have this whole massive tribe that Jacob's leading headed back to the land of Canaan. And he comes to the river and he knows that on the other side of the river, he's going to run into his big brother Esau, who he hasn't seen in many years, and he has no idea what Esau's reaction is going to be. Because last time he saw Esau, Esau was pretty mad at him. And so he sends some of his retinue across the river, but Jacob remains on the far side of the river. And is wrestling with himself. And that wrestling, oops, that wrestling with himself manifests as wrestling with God, wrestling with the angel. The angel is God. And Jacob ends up winning that wrestling match. And so it, it, the story ends in verse 18, where, it's, where the, it says, Then the man, this is the angel, this is God, says, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with human beings and have prevailed. The name Israel, which would go on to be given to the entire nation, means those who have striven with God and with human beings and have prevailed. Now take that context, take that idea that we are allowed, not only allowed, but encouraged to wrestle with God and God's ideas and drop it into this Isaiah passage, right? Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, where we are allowed to wrestle and contend and strive that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. We are allowed to wrestle, to contend with God. We are allowed to bring our questions and our doubts and our concerns and our laments, and together with God, we learn and we discern God's will for our lives. And that's not a one-time deal. I sort of wish it was. I sort of wish it was Neil in The Matrix, and you just plug the thing in the back of your head, and boom, download, we're done, good. That's not how it works. We can keep going back over and over and over again and discerning and learning with God. Why? That's the second half of verse 3. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We take that knowledge, we take that discernment, we take whatever we learn from the wrestling, from the contending, from the discerning, from the striving, we take whatever we learn and we get to go share it with other people, with our community and with the world at large. What the prophet is saying is not only do we get to do that, but in this promised time, in days to come, everybody gets to do that. Everybody will feel that compulsion to have their answers and their questions answered and their concerns addressed and their doubts dealt with, with God. That's verse 3. Verse four is the one that many of us recognize. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The piece of artwork to my right, your left, is connected to Isaiah uh, 2, 4. You see pruning shears and plowshares having been created from swords and from weapons. See, because all nations eventually will turn to God, that means that any disputes that would currently be settled by war and by violence will be settled instead by God, which means no more war, and that means no more violence, which is no small thing to promise. It's no simple thing to think of no more war and no more violence as we sit here today with a war raging in Ukraine and people dying dying in that war daily. It's no simple thing to think of the end of violence when we barely begin to start processing the horrific shooting that was out in Colorado Springs, and boom, we got another one in the Walmart in Virginia. And God help us, there'll be another one coming. To think of an end of all of that violence, to think of an end of any need for the implements that create that violence, is no small thing. It can be difficult to get your head around, but it is the promise that God has made to our ancestors. It's the promise that God makes to us, and it's the promise that God makes to future generations. Maranatha, please come. And if there is no more need for war and violence, then there is no more need for the implements of war and violence. And we don't just stop and do that because that would be cool, although it would be. Again, Walter Brueggemann says that it's not just about ending war and violence, but we also end famine and hunger. I'm sorry, that's not his quote. That's my quote. It is not enough to end spears and swords as an act of romance or goodwill. There must be at the same time production of instruments of life, such as plowshares and pruning hooks. It's not just ending guns and other weapons of of violence. It's about taking the time and the energy and the money that get poured into war and get poured into violence and taking all of that and dumping it into making sure people's basic needs are taken care of. All of that time, all of that energy, all of those resources. Imagine if we applied all of that There would be no more hunger. There would be no more homelessness. And that's the promise that God makes to generations past, to our generation, and to generations to come. And that leads us to the last verse, verse 5, which is maybe the shortest, but maybe the most difficult to dig through. O house of Jacob, remember that wrestling. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Okay, how do we do that? How do we walk in the light of the Lord? This is the question, right? Fortunately, Jesus answers this question for us. Fortunately, it's actually a pretty straightforward answer from Jesus, who loves to give answers coming in the side door. He's got a a habit of doing that. Not this time. This is a direct answer. Unfortunately, it's a pretty difficult ask when you dig into it. So we have to go to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, which say, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The essence of our role as divine image bearers is to reflect the love of the God who is love to other people. That's it, period. End the paragraph. That's our job. And it sounds simple, and it's really, really hard to do that. Because that doesn't mean that we just love the people we agree with. That doesn't mean that we just love the people who look like us, who talk like us, who think like us, who live like us. And it surely doesn't mean that we judge and condemn people who think differently than us and call it tough love. Now, I say something like that, and the pushback is, oh, well, see, this is liberal thinking. You just It's love, it's hippie fairy dust, and we just let everybody do whatever they want. No. No, that's not what it means. What it means is, before we're going to speak words of criticism on anybody else's life, we start with relationship. We start with common ground. We start with building bridges. We start by loving that person. And then as we are invited to speak into their lives, maybe we point to some things that we think might be problematic. Maybe. We don't lead with that and call it tough love. We lead with love and we get to that stuff later on. We are called to love everybody. Even those who hate us. Even those who might do violence against us. Even those who might oppress our brothers and sisters. We are called to lead with love because God is love and as divine image bearers, that's what we're supposed to reflect. John 1.5 says that Christ is a light in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. That light is love and we overcome darkness with love. We lead with love. That You want to walk in the light of the Lord? Love other people. It's the simplest thing to say and it's one of the hardest things to do. That's that's our commandment. That's Jesus's one a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you. Jesus says, "Love other people." That's how you walk in the light of the Lord. So to sum up, we have a story in Isaiah that is given to people facing a dark time. Right, they're facing division, they're facing oppression, they're facing violence, they're facing suffering. Any of that sound familiar? And the story that is told to those folks is a reminder. It's a reminder of God's love. It's a reminder of God's presence. It's a reminder of God's promise. God's promise that everything that is broken, everything that is wrong now will be made right. There will be healing. There will be justice. That's the promise. Our job in dark times is to seek God, is to seek God's will, is to receive God's love and to remember that we're allowed to wrestle and to contend and to question and to doubt that God is okay with all of those things as long as we're sticking with God. Because relationship matters more than blind faith to some certain dogma. It's the relationship that God cares about, not whether we check off all the boxes and follow all the rules. And then as we discern that will, if we discern God's will for our lives and we accept that love, we are to share that with other people. We are to be part of God birthing something new. And just as she birthed something new in love, we are called to walk in the light of that love and bring that light to the rest of the world. That's the story spoken to our ancestors. That's the story we receive today, and that's the story we need to pass on to the generation after generation after generation that comes after us. All of us, together, walking in the light of the Lord, loving one another, all nations. All nations will be part of God's new creation. Amen? Amen.
0: Are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West Podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby your on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If, you, if have you have any questions, questions
1: or would like to... like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.